I don't know if this is my absolute favorite topic to talk about, but it's close if it isn't at the top, and that's the power of God. Why do Christians need it and the empowered church? We have a couple of other power titles on the table, but I didn't want to turn this entire thing into a merch pitch, so that's all I'm going to show you, but you might want to have a look at the stuff we've got back there uh, in the corner. Now, um, did we have a video? Did Janice send a video? No, okay, then forget it. Never mind the video. <clears throat> All right. I'll just tell you, we have a school. It also has a clever name, Orbis School of Ministry. And uh, if you would like to, you think that's funny too? <laughs> um, if you would like to uh, find out more about it, you can get to it through our regular website, but the quickest and fastest way is go to Orbis SM. Com. It will have two S's in it, orbissm.com, SM for School of Ministry. And uh, we have some uh, free material there, gives you a sense of kind of the content. And uh, we just started our Deliverance 103 class that we call Breaking Bondage. We just started it, what is this week or last week? Last week, I guess. Um, anyway, we have activation groups, and I lead webinars, and... Uh, Anyway, we've got a bunch of our students here that have come from across the Midwest and elsewhere. We've got one from Texas. Well, she's actually not a student, but you'll give, you'll give you credit for it anyway. Um, and so if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go there and check it out. Okay. Um, so with that, without further ado, we're going to talk about the power of God. Now, I remember when I got out of um, college, which was a you know good college but fairly heady, and I would say rather hostile to the gospel, even in that ancient time, deep in the last century. And uh, <clears throat> so there was this innate hostility to Christianity, to the gospel, and especially to anything that suggested or sniffed of supernaturalism. Because it, you know, being in the, well, especially because we hadn't really hit the postmodern period in full force yet, uh, we were still kind of locked into the scientific paradigm. And so, you know, the unbelieving natural mind has a unique hostility towards this, this notion of the supernatural. Um, it is offensive to the modern mind to say that a dead man came back to life. It's offensive to say a lot of things that go with Christianity. And although we don't seek to offend anybody and we try not to behave in an offensive manner, you better just get used to the idea you're going to offend a lot of people if you're a Christian. And so, anyway, I, I came out of that environment... <coughs> I came out of that environment... Uh, I'd gone in full of faith, and praise the Lord, I came out full of faith. But that doesn't mean I wasn't beat up. Because I'd been buffeted, and I'd had you know, professors have a go at me, personally. Uh, I didn't like being the object of scorn and ridicule. And uh, it's, it's a longer story, it's too long to really go into tonight. But anyway, by hook and by crook, the Lord supernaturally set it up for me to connect with John Wimber, and I ultimately ended up working for him. But I remember the first time I went to a John Wimber meeting. It wasn't 
some giant conference. I'd just gone to the church that he led. And I remember walking in with my mother, who, as it happened providentially, uh, the night that we went to this service, she had a problem with her mouth. And she'd broken out in sores all over her mouth. And these sores were about this big, about the size of the end of my finger. And they were all dark, well, I don't know, dark brown or black. I don't know exactly, but they were, they were dark and obvious. They were on her tongue. They were on the inside of her lips. They were on her gums. And there were many of them. I mean, not one or two, but several dozen. And she was spontaneously drooling because of the pain that they generated. And nobody knew what it was. She'd gone to a doctor. She'd gone to an oral surgeon, and nobody knew what this was. And she was kind of whimpering because it hurt so badly. And she was holding a rag over her mouth because the pain was so great, she was spontaneously drooling. And if she took the rag away, this big, you know, whatever that's called, is it a wad or a clump or whatever, but all this, this saliva would come pouring out of her mouth. So... I'm trying to give you a sense of it. I'm not trying to gross you out. But it was rather dramatic. And so I took my mother to this meeting. And uh, at the end of the service, John Wimber was very unceremonious about it. He just said, "Uh, now we have a prayer room, you know, over here on my right side. And, you know, if you want prayer for anything, just go on in the room. And there'll be some teams there to meet you. And so my mother was quite resistant. She'd been raised in the same family as my uh, my uncle, who had uh, had an experience with the Lord, but you know he'd grown up behaving like a heathen when he was out of sight from his parents. And my mom was a little better than that, but not much. It, it's kind of that Midwestern Christianity that a lot of you grew up with. Nowadays, it's totally changed, and people just kind of blow it off and hold seances in Methodist churches and stuff. You laugh, but uh, there was a guy in my section, in my uh, doctoral program. He's a Methodist minister, and uh, there he showed me a post that had been put up on Facebook, where a Methodist a Methodist church in his district um, was holding a séance in the church to raise money for the new hall they wanted to build. I'm dead serious. This is legit, and he showed me the Facebook post. Um, And the person that put up the post said, now those of you that are saying this is wrong, remember Jesus communicated with the dead with Moses and Elijah. And so this, anyway, he complained to the bishop and the bishop said, I'm not going to touch it and you shouldn't either. And if you do, I'll defrock you. And I'm thinking, well, that's really interesting. The guy who's objecting to one of the biggest sins that you can commit, necromancy, is, you know, being chastised by his bishop. Anyway, so my, my mother had grown up in Michigan, and so it's not far from here. And, uh, and so there was this sort of, you know, veneer of Christianity, but a lot of people were faking it till they make it, and some of them never did make it. And um, she was, I think, saved after a fashion, but, but certainly not living the victorious life. And uh, <clears throat> I brought her to this service. And she was a little weirded out. So I said, come on, Mom, we're going in that room. She's like, I'm not going in that room. 
you know, oh, no, going in that room <laughs> with the rag in her mouth, right? But anyway, I drug her in there, and uh, these two women walked up uh, that I'm still friends with. And uh, anyway, they put their hands on her and prayed for her, and they didn't pray very long. And in something like 30 seconds, maybe 60, every last one of those sores in her mouth just vanished and were gone. And she knew it because she felt the pain leave her mouth. And so, you know, she, I said, take the rag away from your mouth, Mom. And she, you know, pulls it away. Open your mouth. And, you know, no drool came out. And so now these two women and I are kind of looking in her mouth. We're checking around. And there's no sores. And so I'd seen with my own eyes the power of God on display. And this actually really did something for me. Even though I wasn't wavering in my faith, like I said, I was beat up from the environment I had been in. And I tell you the story because I want you to understand how vital it is that there be raw, unbridled power in our Christianity. Not too long after that, I went to another service at the church and there was a, a man there who was ministering that night. <clears throat> and again, John said, you know, anyone who wants prayer, go in that other room. So we all went dutifully into that other room. And the room where we were meeting, we were meeting in a high school gymnasium. <clears throat> so the room we were meeting in over here was uh, the, the room where they had mirrors on the walls and uh, the, the bars so that, you know, like, People who were doing ballet and things like that, the gymnasts could stretch and, you know, work out. And then there were mats, lots of mats, and they were rolled up. And so this guy jumped up on top of one of the mats. And it wasn't like, you know, here's the mat, so he just jumped about a half an inch. I mean, this was a rolled up mat that was probably as high as that table. And he jumped up on the mat. And he, and he had this high little voice, and he says, Now, those of you that are here that want to know about the power of God, I want you to, you know, step forward. The Lord is going to touch you, is Lonnie Frisbee. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, some people, I didn't really even know what was going on, so I'm just kind of watching the show. Uh, and these people stepped up, and he said, You know, come, Holy Spirit. And it was like a wind had come into the room, but no wind came into the room. And people just got mowed down by the power of the Spirit. They hit the floor and they're shaking and quaking and speaking in tongues. And uh, there were a few that were still left standing. And so this ministry team, they start going around laying hands on people. And I visibly saw people come under the power of the Spirit. You saw some of this last night. Um, but again, it was demonstrable. It was obvious. There was no disputing it. And this is really the value of, um, of the power of God. And in many of our churches, it's missing. In fact, when a church goes into decline, typically one of the very first things to go is the power of God. And with it, the deliverance ministry. These are the two top items that whoosh, out the door. Because, as Yuri said, it's messy. Uh, it's unpredictable. The wind blows where it wills. And so much of religious activity, and by the way, not just Christian activity, 
We could say this of Islam, we could say it of Judaism, we could say it of mainstream Protestantism, much of Catholicism. I mean, just boom, 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 boom. This is kind of what religion is. It's predictable. And, you know, God, the God we serve, if you ever read the Bible, he's a rather unpredictable God. I mean, he's predictable in his goodness. He's predictable in the fact that he, you know, he hears those who call on him. But the way in which he answers and the timing and all of that, there's a, there's a degree of unpredictability to this. And we do not like that at all. Not in our flesh, we don't. Our spirit that's redeemed might lean into that and say, I love this God. He's wild and crazy. Um, but, but our flesh does not appreciate this one bit. And so... One of the things that's happening and actually has been going on now for a generation or so, and we could actually say it goes back further than that, but it's been particularly and uniquely on display for about a generation, is this business of the power of God. Now, I can remember as a boy reading the King James Bible with my grandmother and grandfather, but she was, she was really more the teacher than he was, so she gets kind of the front billing on this one. Um, and it would talk about the power of God. The power of God came on Saul or David. or And I kind of, what is that? What, what do you mean the power of God? And if you read most commentaries, they sort of scratch their heads too, and they say, well, this seems to have been something that having to do with the Holy Spirit. And then there's almost always some sort of immediate disclaimer that says something like this. Uh, of course, that was what they believed then, and we now know that this is just foolishness. And, you know, God doesn't really behave this way. And, uh, you know, most of us have never seen anything like this, so we don't really know what it's talking about. And it kind of left me scratching my head and thinking, well, I, I don't get that. But I remember distinctly saying to the Lord numerous times over a period of, of several years, praying and saying, God, whatever that is, I want to know what that is. I want to see that. I, I don't know what it is, and neither do the theologians, but you know what that is. And please give me some of that. And so, you know, again, the Lord in his own way led me to a place where I could encounter something of this power of God. And so it is one of the key distinctions in this current move of God that's underway, but I should probably say this, that although it is a distinction, it's not universally present. And when I say it, I mean the power. When I say it, I do not refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a he, and his pronouns are he, his, and him. Please use them and don't offend him with other pronouns. I noticed there's an Ohio State campus just down the street, so um, some of you know what I'm taking a shot at as I make that comment. Well, anyway, so this, this, uh, this distinction of the overt moving of the power of God is not something that's evenly distributed. There are spots of it, hot spots if you want to think of it that way, like Wi-Fi. And not all see the manifest power of God on display and not all see it equally. And so, in fact, one of the key risks in the current outpouring is, is, the, is the, a growing emphasis that I see everywhere I go. And it kind of depends on who they're listening to, which way they lean. But this is a really critical thing. The question is, are you a noetic Christian or are you a numinous Christian? Yeah, well, you know what I'm talking about, so <laughs> you're cheating. <clears throat> but 
A noetic Christian is all in their head. It comes from the Greek word for mind, which is nous, N-O-U-S, not nous like... So N-O-U-S, a, a noetic Christian is in their mind and everything that they're doing with their Christianity is cognitive. Do you believe this doctrine? Did you memorize this scripture? Are you claiming things? Are you decreeing and declaring because this is what you've been taught to do, which is the more 21st century version of name it and claim it, which was the old faith word movement that was going on in the 1980s. It's just we've changed the language because you know you gotta update everything sooner or later. That's what marketers tell you to do, right? Nobody laughed at that joke. So that's what a noetic approach to Christianity is. And although there are times that in his own goodness God will respond to that, that's actually not the basis by which God generally heals. Because here's the thing, there's a, there's a, there's a Latin term that comes out of medieval theology, deus ex machina, and it literally means God from a machine. And in a lot of our religious practice, it's like, you know, if you put the coin in the slot and pull the handle, you expect something to come out the other end. And so we treat God that way very often, and it offends him. And unwittingly, we fall into it in our own streams, our own Protestant version of Christianity, with this whole decree and declare thing. And you've seen it in action if you're watching anything online or you've been to certain conferences. You know, Lord, we decree and declare in the name of Jesus. Like, well, here's the deal. That will work when there's a gift of faith on the person praying. And then what you say, God will do. And I've had moments in, over the years where I've seen that happen. <clears throat> but that's not our normal state of existence because all we are really is a lump of clay that has the spirit of God within it. And, and thus we live. And when the Lord withdraws his spirit, vanity of vanities, we return to the dust of the earth. So we don't have the power to decree and declare anything, and most particularly to tell God what he ought to be doing. Unless and until there's a gift of faith that drops on you. It's one of the nine gifts Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, excuse me, 12. Uh, I have teaching on that on the table too. Um, in that case, then it might work, but it's not something that people just walk around with all the time functioning in. And so all of that that I've just described, that sort of, uh, you know, God from a machine approach, uh, this demanding and insisting, all of this is noetic. <clears throat> and then there's a, another term, numinous. It's a Latin term, and it refers to the dynamic power of God. When I say dynamic what the reason I say dynamic is, well, it's dynamic, it's living, it's moving, it, it's flowing, it, it's like current. If you've ever seen a Tesla coil, right? You don't really know where the current arc is going to go. You just know it's moving up the, the pole in the center and it's kind of going to the, you know, to the globe, the glass globe that's around it. Have you guys ever seen a Tesla coil? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so that's really what we're talking about. It's interesting to me that I've come to this uh, place because perhaps prophetically, <clears throat> when I went to college, the university that I attended had as it still has, although I, I suspect its days are numbered, still has as its motto on the seal of the university, 
Dei subnumine viget, which is Latin for, you heard the word numine, that's just a declension of the word numinous. Under God's dynamic power, she flourishes. That's, the, that's, the, that's literally the motto of the school where I went to college. Like I say, so maybe it's prophetic. Well, anyway, um, so in most of the circles where God has really moved in history, whether or not they articulate it well, um, there, is, there has typically always been a theology of power that stresses that numinous aspect. And at least in the piece of the stream that I come out of, which you know in those years was vineyard, and I'm still attached to the vineyard in many ways, but I, I you know, move in a lot wider circles now. That whole numinous aspect goes right back to the visit of Lonnie Frisbee to the vineyard Yorba Linda, which today is known as the vineyard Anaheim. That story's been told many times. Um, it started on Mother's Day in 1980. So we're 41 years you know, down the road from when this all began. Um, but what happened there was that Lonnie Frisbee was invited by John Wimber to speak. And Lonnie said, oh good, I've been waiting for this time. Interesting, I just looked at the clock. It is 7.41 p.m. And it's been 41 years. And this might be a sign that something's going to happen tonight. Well, anyway, so John asked Lonnie to come up and, you know, as the story's been told many times, um, at the end of the sermon, Johnny, or Johnny, Lonnie said, come Holy Spirit, after calling up all the young adults, and the Holy Spirit fell like a bomb and things went off and people got upset because it was messy. This is a church that didn't believe in speaking in tongues. They taught against it, but most of the young people were on the floor speaking in tongues including my friend Tim, who as he fell, his arm kind of hooked one of the microphones and he landed in a heap, screaming in tongues into the microphone. So <laughs> over the, all the monitors. And, yeah. <clears throat> well, I tell these stories to help you understand what we're talking about when we say this word numinous. This is dynamic. It is raw, unbridled power. And the only question is, you know, is the, is, the, you know, is the dial turned down over here or did God decide to really crank it up? And one of the things that will attract the power of God is we can say hunger, but I like the word expectation better. Oral Roberts used to say, expect a miracle. And when I was busy in Australia about 10 years ago and we had a coast-to-coast -coast revival going on, and I would travel around from city to city and whatnot. In all of that, um, one of the things I learned, and I, 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 you know, preachers always do this, they turn things into a phrase or something. Mine was this, expectation is the combustible fuel of faith. And so that's what, that's what, that's what draws God's power. He looks for that hunger that we want him in that way. And when we come with expectations saying, all right, God, show us what you got. You know, I'm putting all my chips in the center of the table. That's when really, truly amazing things would happen. I remember one time I was preaching out in Western Australia, um, about two and a half hours south of Perth. 
And as you get down out of Perth, there isn't much in Western Australia. It's just a, a big empty. A lot of mines, but there's not much else. <clears throat> the whole state of Western Australia has about two and a half million people, which is probably smaller than Cleveland. But you could drop all of Europe into Western Australia and have room left over, just to give you some sense of the scale. So anyway, we're down in this area south of Perth, and it's wintertime. And because it's winter, it does actually get cold in Australia. Most Americans don't know that, but it was chilly. And so, you know, we'd close. We were in the Bunbury Trotting Club. What's the Trotting Club? That's when you kind of like your, your Amish farmers around here. They hook up a thing, and they, they race the horses around the track, pulling this thing that looks a little bit like it came out of Ben-Hur. And so they're racing chariots around an oval. And so they have, sorry? They still do that. Okay, good. Well, anyway, so um, so we're at the trotting club, and they, they had a you know room that were for banquets and functions and all that, and they'd rented this place out. But it was I remember there was a cold wind blowing and the heavy rain coming down, and so they'd shut the windows and whatnot to keep the drafts out, and all of a sudden a gust of wind went through the room, and I literally stopped what I was doing and I said to the people that were organizing it, I said, "Are all the windows and doors closed?" And they said, "Yeah, they are," and I went. Okay, game on. And right on the front row, there was a man who was paralyzed. And he was a mine worker, and he'd been injured in a, in a mine injury. And about the time that wind went through, I just looked at him, and I said, the Lord heals you. Get up and walk. And I didn't even touch the guy, and he got up. He was 39 years old. His spine had been crushed in a rock fall. He had his wife and three children with him, and they all joined hands and began dancing together. About the time that happened, there was somebody way back over here, and she just shoots to her feet, and she says, I've just been healed. I just felt power go through me. I said, what was wrong with you? She said, I was paralyzed in my right leg. And she climbs up on her chair so everybody can really see her. And she's kind of jumping up and down like this. And then the Holy Spirit just dropped on the room. And I kid you not, uh, didn't happen over everyone. But from where I was standing, I could look out of the crowd. And I could see over the heads of many people flames. And I don't mean like the pictures that you've seen you know, in whatever devotional magazine or calendar you have. Where the flame is like this, like a little candle flame. You know, if you go to kind of more shishi restaurants these days and they have outdoor dining, al fresco, they have, you know, these, these things that they stand about this high, but then they've got a glass tube that goes up and the flame will shoot all the way up the tube. It looked like that kind of a flame. So roughly comparable in height to what your natural height would be. And so these people had flames as of fire above their heads and then whoosh, the whole room just took off prophesying and speaking in tongues. I tell you these stories both to build your faith, but also to help you see what I'm talking about. Because one of the things I've learned is if you can see it, you can usually get it. And I think that's where we want to be. We want this power of God. Now, Christian and Jewish theology, I mean, going back to the very beginning, has always had a robust teaching about the power of God. 
Um, but here's a difference. Most Christian theology has tended to emphasize God's power in the past rather than his present acts of power. And that's largely a result of teaching around you know, cessationism and dispensationalism and what God did do. There are some people who don't believe he ever did it, but you know, good Orthodox Christians have always been willing to die in the ditch for the idea that he did it once, even if he isn't doing it now. But if we're going to understand properly the current move of God, we have to understand that when we preach, and when I say that, I don't just mean me in a pulpit or Yuri in a pulpit. I'm not referring only to that. I'm referring to you when you're in the marketplace, when you're having coffee with a friend, when you're at Home Depot and you pray for somebody, you know, in the lumber section or the toilet section or whatever. Uh, you know, you're, you're engaging in whatever level of Christian work you're doing. When we preach, when we talk about God, we do it unto the release of God's power. That's what we want. Now, we want people to be born again, but we want them to be born again because they've experienced God and his power, because this is the iron triangle of evangelism, and you really got to understand this, or you will never get evangelism. The iron triangle, I call it the iron triangle because it's not breakable. There's three components to it. Just like a triangle has three sides, I'm about to tell you what they are. This is the iron triangle of evangelism. There has to be a truth encounter. People hear truth. Now, truth might be them and where they are in their life and why it doesn't work. Truth might be Jesus is the Son of God and you need to repent of all that stuff you're in. You might say it a little softer than that, but that's still the core of the message, however you get that across. That's a truth encounter. And then there's a power encounter. What is a power encounter? It's when people experience God's power. Now, it might be something like a healing. It could be a word of knowledge that reveals something that you wouldn't otherwise have known, and they realize, wow, this person's in touch with something uh, greater than what I even knew existed. <clears throat> it could be any number of dimensions of this. It may not be a healing. It could be something you know supernatural and miraculous like the feeding of the 5,000 or turning water into wine. I mean, God does all kinds of things. But when the power of God is on exhibit, people are confronted with that and they realize we are not talking about a theory. And then the third leg of the iron triangle is that there be a call to commitment. All right, now that you've heard the truth and you've seen something that demonstrates that we're not blowing smoke here, you need to come and you need to come and give your life to Christ or stop the sin you're in and give it back to him after having given it to him years ago and taken it off the altar. Does that make sense? Now, the order is really not that important, and often they do get jumbled up. So you could have the commitment call, and it was premature and it failed, but then you tell them truth, and then they see power, and they take it anyway. So don't be too concerned that you got to lay it out in logical sequence. I mean, there is a logical sequence. I just gave it to you. But, but really, what you're really striving for is that all three be there. So it's a truth encounter, a power encounter, and a commitment called. The, this is the iron triangle of evangelism. And when we are sharing, preaching, teaching, whatever we are doing, always what we are doing is we are preaching unto the release of God's power that all may experience him and his power, period, full stop.
That's what we want to do. And if it ain't happening, well, it ain't happening. Or, as I like to say, anything less than that isn't that. So when I talk about the power of God, this numinous thing, I mean something that's more than mere inspiration. I mean, hopefully this is inspiring to you, but this itself is not really the power of God, at least not yet. But I believe God will release power in this room because we're preaching about it, and God will back the act if we stay on the right messaging. But, <clears throat> but I do not mean inspiration. And oftentimes in Christian circles, you'll hear, hear people say, oh, I love that preacher. He's so powerful. And sometimes he's just powerful because he's loud or animated. He's a good showman. And, you know, I don't, I don't mind that. I like good speaking better than bad speaking. And good orators can be very, well, you know, in the right way, challenging and entertaining to listen to. So I'm all for all of that. But believe you me, I am not talking about I want you to be inspired. I want you to experience power. And if I'm up here going, and you get whacked, that's a good outcome. I also do not mean the concept of God's power whereby we conceptualize or mentally assent to the reality of that power but never really experiencing it. And consequently, we might say, well, I think I've experienced God's power. Listen, if you say you think you've experienced God's power, you haven't. It's a little bit like jumping out of a plane and skydiving. I think I went skydiving. Really, how was that? I mean, you, you know if you jumped out of a plane, right? There are a lot of experiences in life that are that way. And so there is a tangibility to the power of God. It's like electricity almost, except it isn't electricity. It's God's flowing, dynamic power. That's what it is. And I'm thinking right now as I tell you this about a situation that happened to me. Well, I have two of them actually that are pretty interesting stories. In one, I was, uh, this was during the Australian revival. And I went to this Anglican church, one of the ten largest in the, in the country of Australia. And I was preaching there to a bunch of Anglicans. And Anglicans as a whole are kind of buttoned down people. They like their prayer book and things are usually pretty decent and in order. Rather predictable. This church was open to things more than that. <laughs> they wouldn't have had me in there if they weren't. But, <clears throat> but the church was still, still pretty Anglican. And uh, so the, the rector, the, the senior pastor, he was, he was on side. Uh, but he had a curate, that's Anglican speak, for a, an assistant pastor, a, a trainee. And this curate was a younger guy that he'd gone to one of the best Bible schools in Australia. He'd gotten top grades. He'd even written papers on the power of God based in the Bible. But um, when the power of God started moving, he got a little bit uncomfortable. And I was, I was in that church for a week. So it was a long week for this guy. <laughs> and he stopped showing up at meetings um, and the meetings were growing, and you know, he wasn't really... I asked the pastor about him at one point. He goes, well, he's not comfortable with what you're doing. I said, oh, I said, what's the problem? He goes, well, he doesn't like your style. I said, well, am I, am I speaking poorly, or am I, 
like being offensive? And he goes, no, I don't think it's that. And he goes, just keep going. So we, all right, we just let it be and kept on with it. Well, on the uh, last night that I was there, I had a meeting with the ministry team, which was about 70 people or thereabouts. And they all uh, obviously were members of the church. And I, I, I don't remember what I taught on that night, but anyway, I, whatever I did, I taught on something. And, uh, and then I had a word, and I said, there is somebody here, I, you've got metal in your right wrist that was installed surgically because of a fall that you took, and it broke your wrist, and the Lord wants to heal you. Who is that person? Well, this woman right back here stands up, and little did I know, she's the head of the ministry team. Every person in the room knows who she is. The Lord says to me, tell her to walk down to the front. So I said, come on down to the front. So she, you know, comes down, and she looks at me kind of expectantly. I said, turn around and face the crowd. So she does. And, uh, and I said, stretch out your hand. Now, Jesus did this in one instance of the man with a withered hand. It's slightly different, but it's the same part of the body anyway. And as she did, this, this church was built out of a substance they use over there. Um, Australia's a pretty green country, and so it's, it's eco-friendly. It's called rammed earth. It looks like bricks, but it's, it's rammed earth. They literally ram it, and then they drain the water out of it, and it becomes hard like a brick. So the whole church is acoustically alive, right? All the treble sounds and the high end of the frequency spectrum Everything just bounces off the walls because the whole building is hard surfaces, except for the carpeting on the floor. And so as she stretches out her wrist, there's a very distinct, like that, that echoes through the room. And as it happens, I just happen to look up, and at the very back of the sanctuary, here's this curate, and he's been like this, looking in. And at the moment that she gets healed, she says, I've been healed. And I said, you have? She goes, yes, look. She drops down and starts doing push-ups. I look up again, and all I see is the tail end of that curate. <laughs> full afterburners. He's getting out of there. He resigned the next week. Well, that guy wrote papers on the power of God, but he didn't know much about the power of God. Another story, this happened in Central America. Um, I went down there with a team, and this team I had with me was, these folks were tuned up, man. This was SEAL Team 6. So they were, I mean, they were all of them. There's, there's this one woman on the team. Um, she's a good friend of mine. She's on my intercessor team. She's a Mexican-American, and, uh, and I call her Mi Evangelista because in a typical week, she will lead between 12 and 15 people to Christ. She's just hardcore about it. One time I met her and another friend for coffee, and I walked into the coffee shop, and she and the friend have this homeless guy kind of up against the wall. <laughs> They're praying for him. They lead him to faith, and you know, then they turn him loose and let him go. But anyway, she's that kind of a person. Every person on the team was sort of that focused. Well, we get down to this country in Central America, and it's not going well. It's like wading through mashed potatoes. Nothing's happening. So I tell the team, man, we got to pray. So we start praying two hours in the morning, asking God for breakthrough. It's still not working. Every night we hold these meetings, and it's just miserable. I call my wife, and she goes, how's it going down there? And I said, it's horrible. I quit. I'm coming home. She goes, don't you come home. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, we kind of slog through it for a couple more days. I call her again. She goes, I'm not even talking to you. Don't talk to me. <laughs> you know, not really. But, but anyway, she wasn't taking any of it. You know, you're not coming home. This is it. Just stay in the fight. So anyway, we kind of marched through it. And I'm just, I'm in agony. But anyway, on the last night, there's a guy and he's, I, I give the sermon. I call the people forward for prayer. And there's a guy standing over here. And he's, he's, he's a pastor that I've met. In fact, during the week, as we often will do when we take these international trips, we'd broken down into ministry prayer circles, teams, and we'd bring people in that are the harder cases that they're going to need more than what we can commonly do with an altar call. And we do in-depth prayer ministry over them. I don't tend to do that as much in the U.S. because we don't have enough time most of the time. But on the international trips, we try to do that. So we'd had several people come through for this kind of ministry midweek, and um, that guy had been one of them that I had gotten uh, with the people that were praying with me for those that were bringing appointments, and he didn't get healed. And he had a fatal blood disease. So, you know, he's either getting healed or he's going to die. So he hadn't gotten healed, and I'm, you know, call my wife again. She's like, nope, (laughs) bye. So anyway, that night, he's standing over there, and all of a sudden, I see this flicker out of the corner of my eye up, in, up there, and it's moving at him at about that speed. And so it's like a javelin, and it's a shaft of light. And I see it moving right at him, and I pointed at him, and I said, the power of God is on you! And he was literally blown off his feet. He falls backward, His elders try to catch him. There's so much power on him. The whole lot of them hit the ground, and it was like a bowling, you know, bowling alley. Everybody around them, they all go down, and it's on. SEAL Team 6, they know what to do. They're just hosing the place down. One, two, three cripples in a row get healed right over here. People are throwing their hearing aids out of their ears. People who have crutches come running up to the front. They're dancing with crutches over their heads like this. The power of God had invaded the room. Well, after all that, I get a phone call from the, what they call the 2IC, second in charge. Um, so he's the deputy to the senior pastor. And uh, this guy's all kinds of upset. And we'd had, a, we'd had a lunch meeting a couple of days before. And when I'd met the, the staff of the church, as we went around the room, each person I had some kind of a word for them. And as we come around the corner, this is the two I see right here. And when, I, when we get to him, the Lord says to me, this man is not your friend. And I'm like, And I'm thinking, I just gave everyone a word, Lord. What do you want me to tell him? <laughs> so anyway, uh, he calls me, and this guy's not happy. And he goes, you think God loves some people more than others? I said, I never said that. Where'd you get that idea? He says, well, you know, you, you said the Holy Spirit's on some more than others. I said, well, I said the Holy Spirit was moving here and there specifically, but that's sort of like a line of paratroopers on a C-130. Someone's got to go first, but eventually everybody's jumping off the plane. And I said, did you notice that the whole room exploded and that there were, you know, many healings and cripples and all this? And uh, he wasn't impressed with any of that. 
So he kept pushing me. It was not my best moment. Don't do this. I did it, but that doesn't mean you should do it. You know, early that morning, I'd gotten a phone call from this pastor who'd gotten hit by this shaft of power. And he'd run to the clinic early in the morning in the aftermath of the previous night's activity because he wanted to be tested and his blood test had come back completely negative. He was totally healed. So this pastor, the, the 2IC guy, he's, you know, he's really having a go at me and he's kind of pushing it. And so I finally, again, don't do what I did, but I got a little bit in the flesh and I said, tell me exactly which part of his being healed of a fatal blood disease did you not like? Not my best, no, don't do it. Well, it might be true, but sometimes you're better off to be offended by another person than to be right. And if you're going to move in power, that's lesson number one. Because there will be people who do not like what you are doing. And they will become your enemies for no other reason than God is on display. It's a really important lesson. Well, in all that I'm telling you up to this point, what, I've, what I'm really saying is that in what we are doing, we are seeking to recapture something of the essence of early Christianity. And that essence is the one that caused Paul the Apostle to write, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, demonstration means you can see it or touch it or feel it or smell it or something so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's where we want to get people to. That's why I was beat up coming out of college because I hadn't seen any power. We prayed for people that were sick or injured in our campus fellowship. I don't know that we ever had anybody get healed. People would speak in tongues. I wasn't sure if they were really tongues or not most of the time. You know that one, right? Yeah, okay. So, you know, we had all that going on. We had, you know, these prophecies that didn't come to pass. And we had all these things that were, you know, so I was kind of like, wow. And so when I saw my mother's mouth get healed, when I saw people collapsing under the power of God, I remember calling a friend of mine who was a year behind me and who was, you know, obviously getting ready to graduate from college but hadn't yet done so. And, I, and when she picked up the phone, I said, it's all true. That was literally what I said. I still remember that phone call. And she said, what do you mean? I said, everything in the Bible, it's all true. Because I'd seen that demonstration of power. And Paul goes on and he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words and in talk, but in power. And this is why we must have power in our ministry. That's why what happened last night was so critical. It was so important. God was showing off. God was showing what he could do. And, you know, in ourselves, we're nothing. We're just clay. We're just dust. But the Lord has chosen to make us vessels of his glory so that, well, we, we hold a treasure in earthen vessels. And, and when we are used in that way, God can use us to demonstrate who he is to the earth. And this will catalyze moves of God. 
Well, what are we talking about when we talk about the power of God? In Exodus chapter 3, we see this. God calls Moses out of the burning bush and he says, you know, go to my people and speak to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go that they may come worship me. And Moses says, who shall I tell Pharaoh has sent me? And who shall I tell the people has sent me? Because Moses is no fool. Remember, he'd served in Pharaoh's court for 40 years. He knows the power structure. He knows the culture. He knows what he's up against. He's against, up against the predominant hegemonic power of the southwestern Middle East, the northern part of Africa. The kingdom of Egypt extended all the way to Lake Victoria and across the northern tier of Africa as far as the Pillars of Hercules, or today the Straits of Gibraltar. And so he was daring to go into the very seat of power and say, let them go. Let your slaves go that power your economy. And of course, the people who are in slavery, I mean, it, they've got it bad, but they're fed. And generally, if people are fed, they'll put up with a lot. And besides, where are they going to go? They've been there for 400 years. Most of them have forgotten how to speak Hebrew. And they're used to the Egyptian gods and the culture and, you know, the nice warm sunshine of Egypt. And on it goes. And so Moses says, who, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? This God that I'm seeing in a burning bush, but, you know, the bush isn't being consumed. And so, you know, I'm sort of like, this is sketch. And God said, I am who I am. And so say this unto the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so from this we see this first important point. The power of God is self-sufficient. It is an expression of God himself. When you see the power of God on exhibit as you did last night, you are actually observing the person of God moving in a way that you can see or touch or measure God is in your midst, and this should create a kind of awe, maybe even fear, possibly terror, but it should recreate something. The power of God originates from no one else. It is dependent on no one else, and it is an expression of his glory. It's not the only expression of his glory, but it is an expression of his glory, and to use the language of the medieval theologians, you are having an unmediated contact with the divine when the power is moving in the room. That's what's going on. The second thing we can say about this is that the power of God is creative. And so in the, in the book of uh, Proverbs of all places, chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Watch that word wisdom. We're going to come back to it. But the Lord by wisdom founded the earth... By understanding, he established the heavens. And then we have um, this other one that comes out of Jeremiah. It's chapter 10, and it's verse 12. And it says, it is he who made the earth by his power. Now, if you caught what I said, that he, is, that he founded the earth on wisdom, but Jeremiah is saying he made the earth by power, that tells you there is an inextricable link between God's wisdom and God's power. They are conjoined. 
And in fact, many times, word of wisdom will release the miraculous. It's an undervalued gift. People want word of knowledge because it's impressive. But the word of wisdom will release the divine, numinous power of God, the electricity of God within the room. That's what wisdom will do. And he established the world by his wisdom. There's that same language that we picked up out of Proverbs. And by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. So the power of God is also creative. He created the world by power. And here's what we know. Using that word wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God along with righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I appreciate the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, but that's not my topic tonight, so I'm going to push it to the side, not because it isn't true, but only because it's off topic for where we're going. Jesus is the wisdom from God, and therefore he is the conduit through which all divine power flows. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. When we talk about the power of God, it will only work in a radically Christocentric, Christ-honoring context. And when we put him on display and preach into the person of Christ, great electrical things will often happen. Dynamic things will happen. And so the power of God comes through the Son of God. But the power of God is more than creative. The power of God is also sustaining. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Hebrews 1.3 it tells us Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the effulgence. He is that which flows out of God's glory. And as I said... Before, he is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe holds together. It doesn't fly apart because of the sustaining power that is mediated through the sun. That's all tied up into this thing that we call the power of God. Colossians 1.7, in him all things hold together. And so in this we understand that Jesus is first in existence and he is first in rank and privilege. This is what we can learn, maybe not cognitively, I'm putting words on it for you now, but experientially when we contact the numinous power of God, or maybe I should say it contacts us, you are experiencing direct, unmediated revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. That's why it needs to follow the preaching of Christ. That's why Paul said, my message and my preaching were not with wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Because just before Paul had gotten to Corinth, he'd been in Athens. And what did he do in Athens? Well, you know, your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. And so, you know, we are his offspring. And Paul's trying all this fancy, you know, intellectual talk with their poets and their Greek. And many theologians say, well, this is the height of Paul's ministry. No, it wasn't. It was the basement. Because where did he get his huge breakouts? Ephesus. Great power was on display in Ephesus. Thessalonica. Great power was on display in Thessalonica. 
Corinth. Well, we don't need to say anything about that. We know what Corinth was full of. I mean, it was carnal, but there was a lot of power. And the power of God is miraculous. In fact, the word that we translate power comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's the root for the word dynamite. And it is also the word from which we get our English term miracles. And so the power of God is miraculous power. And according to Hebrews 6.5, it reflects the powers of the coming age. The things that we deem miraculous will be normal in the age to come. And God's intent is that we have a foretaste of it in this life. In this life, we should have a foretaste of that power. Well, in Exodus chapter 33, this is really my main text tonight. All that was preamble. So I'm following the preacher's outline now. I'm telling stories before I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to read more than one verse, though. So Jer uh, Exodus chapter 33, <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, See, you keep on saying to me, bring up this people. But you've not yet let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. If it sounds circular, it is, but we'll explain it in a minute. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now in this passage, God is speaking with Moses and promises to him his presence. I will be with you, I will be among you. Not just you, Moses, but also the people that you lead. That's in verse 14. And for Moses, this was really the minimum. He wasn't really willing to move beyond the spot where they were encamped at that point without God's presence accompanying them. And that's what he says back to God in verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. Just let us stay here. But Moses was actually wanting more. <clears throat> he wanted to move from presence to glory. A lot of people don't understand that there are different levels of God's revelation. So presence is that thing, you know, you're in an awesome worship set or sometimes you're, you're listening to a sermon and you're feeling God and you're like, wow, that's pretty heavy. But there's, there's, there's a level beyond this that, that Moses is seeking. And because, because of this, I think Moses understood something of it. He'd been on the mountain. He'd seen a lot up there. We can go from presence to glory to power. 
That's, that's our level of ascent. In fact, John Climacus talked about this. He's one of the Eastern Orthodox fathers. He calls it the ladder of divine ascent. But God responded when Moses said, show me your glory. He says, I'll show you my goodness. That's in verse 19. So Moses asked for glory, which is beyond presence, and God says, I'll show you my goodness. So what do we understand from that? That the glory of God is seen in the goodness of God. Now, whether it's miracles, whether it's healings, whether it's deliverance, whatever it is, um, these things flow out of the goodness of God. And Moses had actually had a glimpse of the glory of God. It's a little earlier in Exodus, but in chapter uh, 19, Moses, uh, it says this uh, of Moses, he'd gone up into the mountain, and it says, now Mount Sinai was wreathed in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. One continuous rolling earthquake. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, as it grew louder and louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Show me your glory. Well, that'll put you on your face. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses from the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Exodus chapter 24 gives us a glimpse of what that encounter was like. Exodus 24, verse 16 the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Moses asked for glory. He got it. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud. Be careful what you wish for. Moses was questing to see the glory, and God descended in fire on the mountain in one continuous earthquake and yet, the Lord had said, I won't show you the full extent of my glory. I mean, he did, after all, create the universe. So as good as this is, as powerful as this is, as over the top as this is, compared to what most of us have ever come into contact with, um, God said, I won't actually show you everything because you can't see my face and live. But you can see my back. And so as Moses is in this encounter with the mountain shaking and the fire and the smoke and God speaks to Moses, you know, on the mountain, as this is happening, God says, I'll show you my back as my glory passes by. And so Moses is in this cleft of the rock and God puts his hand over him. And as he passes by, he removes his hand and Moses sees his back. And so in this, we understand that the revelation part of it that Moses is having is he is viewing a humanoid form. It's not human. We're created in the image of God. 
but we don't have language. I, I guess you could call it deoid form, but, but it's humanoid because if we're in the image of God, then there is something of God's way that, that he has something that kind of looks like this. Ezekiel had a vision of this in Ezekiel 8. Um, we also have a couple of other places, one of them having to do with the, the mountain of ascent uh, where they look up and they see under the blue sapphire paving, under the, they see the feet of God. Now, I don't know if he has ten toes, but whatever. So there, there's something of this. When it says we are created in the image of God, we're created in the image of God in his image and likeness. We're not him and he's not us. I'm really clear about that. But, but we are made somehow structurally, I guess, to mirror him. But in this, what we see is that the glory of God is not a what, it's a who. And Yuri and I were talking about this at dinner, that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Moses, but Moses had seen him. He didn't see his face, though. Why? Because this is roughly 14, 45, 46, 44 B.C. Jesus hasn't been born yet. So Moses can't see the face of the, of the Son of God pre-incarnate, but God says, I will give you a hint. I will let you see something. And so that's what Moses is seeing. He's seeing the who. And this is exactly why the power of God <clears throat> is revealed through Jesus. And so if we look at the book of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. Well, we've already kind of covered that one out of the Old Testament. But then it goes on. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we transition from glory to power. And as I already said, this, this thing that we're talking about, you can't get there through any other religion in the world. I don't care what it is. I don't care how devout it is. You can't get there in Judaism, as good as it is. You can't get there in Islam, because it's, it's corrupted anyway. You can't get there through Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism or Jainism or Taoism or anything else. You can't get there from here. There's only one way into this level of what we're describing, and that is him. And so Jesus is the one through whom God created the world, Jeremiah said he created the world through his own power. Jeremiah 10, 12, we already read it. And so Jesus is the word of his power. And this is why the scripture says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus both reveals the glory of God and he unfurls the power of God. Now, it's a lot of theology, but stay with it. It's about to get better. So Jesus revealed the power of God when he raised Lazarus from the dead. What did he say? He said, actually he says to, uh, to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? But again, we transition from glory to the very power to summon the dead back to life. And in fact, God revealed the power when he raised Jesus from the dead 
we'll say unassisted. Well, that's, that's a basic theology of power. Um, you won't get that one in your typical seminary course, but anyway, there you are. But now that we understand what the power is about and why it's important, let's talk for a minute about us, because actually the power of God is directed right at us. Luke 4.14, Jesus has been in the wilderness. He returns from the wilderness, it says, in the power of the Spirit. He's clothed in power. He's wreathed in power. And what had happened? Well, he'd gone into the Jordan River for baptism, and when he's baptized, the dove comes down. This is, I mean, obviously Jesus is acquainted with the Holy Spirit, but, but the dove comes down and rests on him. This is like the first introductory level. It's the you know, kiss of God, if you will. Jesus comes out of the river, and as he just climbs up on the bank, really, it says he's filled with the Spirit. That's Luke 4.1. And so, you know, we've talked about presence. Well, the presence is the dove. And then we talked about glory. Well, the analog would be the filling that Jesus has on the bank of the Jordan River in Luke 4.1. But now he goes into the desert, takes him 40 days, just like Moses, and after 40 days, he returns in the power of the Spirit. You can see the ladder of divine ascent right there. So Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit, and things begin to happen. And we looked at a story of that last night. But Luke is uniquely interested in the theology of the power of God. And so just a chapter later in Luke 5.17 Jesus is preaching, it looks like from the text, like it's probably his own home. It might have been someone else's. But anyway, he's, he's preaching in his house. It's not a very big house. It's filled to the gills with people who are wanting to see him, hear him, hoping they'll see a miracle. Um, because there's, there's something of that effulgence that's coming off of him. Everybody is seeking Jesus. Everybody's wanting to touch him and interact with him. The disciples have told him, everyone's after you, Everyone, everyone's looking for you. And in Luke 5.17, while Jesus is teaching and scribes and Pharisees are sitting right there, four men bring their friend on a stretcher. And they can't get in because it's too full. And so they go up on the roof and they chop a hole in the roof. And you know, when we hear that, we tend to think, well, they chopped a hole in the roof. But how much of a hole do you need for a guy in a stretcher? I mean, this isn't big enough. It's got to be, you know, six sort of feet. If he was a tall guy, maybe six and a half, I don't know. But anyway, they chopped this hole, and it's got to be, you know, at least this wide. And so they, you know, you got plaster and straw and maybe some adobe and, you know, tile works and a dead rat falling down out of this hole. And it's, you know, it's, it's over Jesus' head. And so they're all kind of... And, you know, they're all looking up, and this hole's getting bigger and bigger. You know, somebody you would have thought would have said, hey, go stop those guys from doing this. They're, they're breaking up the meeting. Expectation is the combustible fuel of faith. These men expected that if they got this guy in front of Jesus, something was going to happen. And so, suddenly, the hole's big enough. And so you, I, the way I picture it anyway, you got four guys, they get ropes, and they tie one on each end of this stretcher. And they're like, okay, Asher, you got him? Yeah, I got him, Jacob. Okay, on my count. Oh, oh you're going to drop him. Okay, brace and drop. 
And so this guy's coming down. And now he's swinging here right in front of Jesus. And the scripture says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think that's a really important point. It goes right into the heart of our integrated model of healing. There are sometimes people can't get healed without having sins that they've either forgotten to confess or that have been neglected or that everybody says they're not actually sin. This needs to be dealt with. It's not universally true, but it's true often enough. It's a specific category of healing. So <clears throat> anyway, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven and all the Pharisees and Scribes are like, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the polemic way, the didactic way of understanding the Bible that most of us grew up with here in the Midwest, I count myself because of Michigan, is, you see, this proves Jesus is the Son of God, QED. Nothing more to see here, folks. Move along. But I think the real other issue is we're learning the dynamics of power. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and when he does that, because of the power to remit sins, suddenly now the circuit can close and power goes through this man and he is healed. And so Jesus says to the scribes, you know, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who can measure it? It's like playing basketball without hoops or football without, you know, the gridiron on the end. And so they're used to kind of playing in that world. And Jesus is like, look, I'll show you what's real here. And by this, you'll know. What are they about to have? They're about to have a direct, unmediated revelation of Jesus in that healing moment. But they reject it. But a lot of other people didn't reject it. And so this is the other thing that when the power of God is flowing, it will, it will create a division. It will separate one from the other. Wheat from chaff, believer from unbeliever. And people are forced to make a choice when these encounters occur. Does that make sense to everybody? So there's Luke 5.17. Well, maybe because of that, in Luke 6.19, it says that power was coming out of Jesus. It was literally flowing from him. And so everybody was seeking to touch him, and everyone who did so was healed. There's the numinous power of God. It's dynamic. It's active. There's none of this claiming and standing and decreeing and all of that. It's just if you touch it, it just happens. And so Luke 6, 19, everybody who touched him gets healed. Luke 8, 46, we got the woman with the issue of blood. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Apparently she missed Luke chapter 6, maybe because she wasn't allowed in because she was unclean and everybody knew it. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. But she says, man, if I can just get near him, if I can have my own version of that Luke 6 event, I want my own version of that. Luke 8, 46, she reaches out. She says, I'm not going to get to touch the, him. You know, I'm not going to touch the man. There's, it's too many people around him. There'll be people freaking out. What's that unclean woman? So she's kind of crafty. She says, I'll just dip down low and I'll get the fringe of his garment. And when she does, and not only that, Jesus feels it. He goes, who touched me? Peter goes, oh, Lord, all these people are touching you. He's like, uh-uh-uh, no, 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 no. Peter, 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 what am I going to do with you? Oi, Peter, Peter. Okay, so now she's been had. She goes, I, I, this is what I did. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, this is not that faith of claiming and decreeing and, you know, all of that noetic stuff. This was confidence. This was expectation. If I just get in touch with it, 
Bow, it'll happen. I remember, this is a few years ago now, um, haven't had a meeting like this since then, and it happened outside the United States. Because of the differences in culture, I think this is more likely to happen in countries like Mexico, but we were, we were doing a meeting in a very large facility in Cancun, and, um, and the time came for us to leave, and so the team had to you know, make their way out of the building, and let's just say we were well past fire code. We had people in the aisles and up here, and they're sitting on the stage. And I had a little box, you know, where I could kind of move about this far without stepping on people. And God was healing all kinds of things. It was just an incredible meeting. But now it's time to go. And to get up there, you had to come up this staircase, and the staircase was filled with people. And so they kind of make a way through the crowd. And this is not just me, by the way. This is the team. But as we're making our way through this little opening through the crowd people start reaching out to touch us. We weren't laying hands on them. They were laying hands on us in order to access that power. And every person who touched us was falling out, getting healed. And we hit the staircase, and the first person at the head of the staircase looks at us and falls out under the power of this effulgent thing that's flowing. This does happen. Catherine Coleman has it. Had it. She's dead now. Benny Hinn gets it from time to time, and he used to get it a lot more. Mario Murillo. I mean, these things are, they are real. They're not common, but they ought to be. And so we get to the head of the staircase, and the first person kind of looks at us, falls out, crumples on the staircase, and that kind of sets off a chain reaction, which conveniently cleared the staircase. And we make our way down the staircase. We get out into the street, and there's about 500 people in the street who couldn't get into the meeting. The sun is out. It's southern Mexico. And as the sun is, is shining, it's creating shadows. And as our shadows are hitting people, they're getting healed. Cripples are getting up off the pavement, walking and being healed. And I don't have 10 of those. I have one of those stories. But if it can happen once, it can happen more. I, this I know. So... The people were seeking to touch Jesus so they could have power heal them. The woman with the issue of blood wanted the power so she could be healed. And then, I love this, <laughs> I love this so much. Luke 24, 49, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But you must wait for it. I, my Father will send you the gift that I have promised you. Stay in Jerusalem until you've got it, because without it, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's going to be a, a pretty unimpressive match. But when you are clothed with power, when you are invested with power, then you will go and be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses when he doubles down on the same command in Acts 1.8, not only in Jerusalem, but beyond Jerusalem into Judea, and then into Gentile-ish territory, Samaria, where they sort of kind of know about God. That would be most of Ohio. And Michigan, and Indiana, and Kentucky, and West Virginia. That's America today. We're all Samaritans in America, except the few of us that are still holding to the true faith. I'm just calling it the way it is. And I'm trying to make it relevant so you can see why this matters to you and even to the ends of the earth. 
And so they get the power that happens on, in Acts chapter 2. You know the story. Although it doesn't specifically say, doesn't say power in Acts 2, but it's fairly obvious because uh, the next chapter, the crippled man who'd been sitting at the gate, beautiful, he gets healed. The power's on display. Gets him into trouble with the authorities, though. And then Acts 4.33, the apostles gave testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is more than mere conviction. This is more than great preaching. This is more than I'm fired up. This is something that's, that God has invested it into his church. This is the plan of God for his church. <laughs> I like your style. I like yours too. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. The power of God, Paul says, is directed toward us and through us. And it's just a fraction of the power that God exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You have within you, if you are a spirit-filled believer, you have the power of God in this way. Now there is one small catch here. Just as electricity flows best through copper wire, or better yet, gold wire, it's just too expensive to make it, um, and even beyond that, through what they now call superconducting metals, which are usually, you have to create it in, an, in a laboratory, it doesn't occur in nature, where there is infinite conductivity, no resistance. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says that the, 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 here comes the prince of this world and he has nothing in me. Jesus has infinite conductivity of the power of God because he is pure and sinless. We have all these impurities in us, we can call it sin, it can be bad attitudes, it can be you know, lustful thoughts, it can be drunkenness, it can be grumbling and complaining, it can be all this stuff. Um, it can also be something where things have been come against us and they've, they've corrupted us and polluted us. Maybe people have done something to us. Um, we live in the natural fallenness of our human nature that we get from Adam and Eve. All of these are like impurities. And so if, if one end of the, of the spectrum is superconducting capability, and below that, we've got gold and copper and aluminum. Over here, we've got something called an insulator where nothing will flow. And for a lot of us, we're, we're very good insulators, and we're not so good at being superconductors. And God's looking to upgrade everybody this way. But we've got to participate in that. We've got to say, okay, Lord, all this stuff that's in me, all that compromise I've made, all the things that I said, yeah, but doesn't apply to me, that's going out the window because that, that is kind of the stuff that will, that will release greater and greater levels of power. I'm not trying to move us towards legalism. I'm trying to move us towards purity. That's what I'm trying to do. But in everything I've told you tonight, we see that healing, which was what Yuri wanted me to talk about, how do we get more healing? Healing comes through power. It comes through the numinous power of God. It does not come through formulas and noetic decrees. And I proof texted it multiple ways, and I even gave you a theology foundation for it. Now I want to talk, before we close for just a moment, <clears throat> about the lineage of power. In the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, in the Anglican traditions, and even in many Lutheran traditions, they subscribe to something that is known as apostolic succession. We don't really use that language in renewal Christianity, so I need to explain it to you, but... In brief, what it says is that, you know, you had Jesus and the apostles, 
And after Jesus was gone, the apostles had their ministries, but ultimately they raised up their own successors, whoever they were, and they commissioned them. They presumably laid hands on them, although it doesn't really say that. And so, you know, coming from the apostles, there was the next generation, and it appears from church history that the church continued to flow in a very high level of power in that next generation. And from them, there was another generation but eventually things sort of die out. And this is why people say, well, you know, after the apostles died, all the miracles ceased. Or the other version of it, after they completed the Bible, all the miracles ceased. That was never the intention of God. But unbelief crept in, carnality crept in, which isn't the same thing. But you generally won't act in carnal ways unless you're living in unbelief. So they're linked, but they're not the same. And so that's, that's what's developing. And eventually the church kind of peters out. And you get these momentary spikes of it different people at different times, but, but it's no longer a continuous flow until 1906 when William Seymour opens the Azusa Street Mission and the glory of God descends and we have a pouring out of the Spirit unlike anything since the days of the apostles. There's nothing in church history anywhere that even approximates Acts 2 or Azusa Street. So William Seymour becomes our sort of baseline, the year is 1906. That was 115 years ago. Well, William Seymour, you know, he, he was not an educated man. He trained who he could and he did what he could. Um, but there were, there were a number of people that came out of his ministry who carried on his legacy. We could name a lot of them, but two of them that matter for us are John G. Lake and Fred Francis Bosworth, often known as F.F. Bosworth. If you're a student of healing, you've probably read some of the writings of both of these guys. Um, but if you will, if William Seymour is our baseline, then these two men are the spiritual sons of William Seymour. They aren't literal sons, but if you understand this idea of apostolic succession, we are starting to see a succession right there because what Seymour had, they caught. And that's an important word because these things are better caught than taught. I'm giving you an, an understanding of how this all works tonight but we're moving to now the, the implementation phase in this message. So Seymour did what he did. Glory came. Limbs grew. Blind people saw. On and on it goes. A few years ago, I took a friend who was visiting from Australia, and we went to the cemetery where William Seymour was buried, and we went in the dead heat of summer in California. And uh, we got to the cemetery, and the entire place was brown like brown, not kind of brown with a little green. I mean, it was all brown. And we went into the cemetery, and we had to go find the sexton and ask him, hey, where's the William Seymour grave? And he goes, oh, it's over there, you know, kind of pointed us. And so we drove over there and parked and started moving among the tombs and looking. And we came to William Seymour's grave. And what was interesting is, I already told you, the entire cemetery was dead brown. But William Seymour's grave right over where the casket would have been was a perfect rectangle of green grass about this long in the dead heat of summer. So I went back to the sexton. I've got a picture of it. I just didn't prepare it for tonight. Or I would have had them shoot it up on the screens. But I went back to the sexton. I said, is anyone coming here and watering this grass? He goes, no, we don't water this cemetery and nobody's been to that grave in a long time. I said, you're sure? He goes, I'm sure. I work here all the time. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Questioning me. So I said, well, I'm just curious because that grass there is like this long, which tells me it's been growing for weeks, and everything around it is dead, dead, dead brown. 
but this grave has green grass. He goes, yeah, it's a funny thing. It's always like that. I don't really understand it, but it's just the way it is. Well, that isn't a prophetic sign. I don't know what is. Here's the grave, green grass, everything else is dead. And I'm like, wow, the enduring power of God's spirit coming from the very bones. It reminds me of the story of Elisha, the prophet. You know, when they threw the dead man in the, in the cave, and when it, the dead man touched the bones, the power came into him and raised him from the dead. Yeah? Okay. So we got Seymour, we got Lake and uh, Bosworth. Well, that takes us into the, into the teen years of the 20th century. And right behind them comes a young woman named Amy Semple uh, who gets married to Robert McPherson and she becomes Amy Semple McPherson, the founder of the Foursquare movement, um, now followed by more than 20 million people worldwide. She built a, an edifice called Angelus Temple that would seat 5,000 people. And during the Great Depression, her church did more to care for the poor in Los Angeles and the hungry and the starving than the combined federal and state governments, the county government and the city of Los Angeles all together. They didn't do as much as she did. Guess who had some enemies? Because she made them look bad. But she had a tremendous healing ministry. And up until not very long ago, if you went into Angeles Temple... As you, it's a five-story high structure, a 1,000 seats per level. As you go up each level, as you get to the top of the staircase, on both sides of the staircase, um, there, would be a, there was a glass case. And in it were crutches and ear horns and spectacles and stretchers and wheelchairs. And underneath each one was a handwritten little card that said, you know, John Smith, 123 Elm Street, Pasadena, California. Clear implication? This is the guy that was healed who let go of this conveyance, whatever it is, this device. If you want to check it out, go to John Smith's house. This is where he lives. You can talk to him and interview him yourself. And that was still there in the very late 20th century, uh, circa 1995, thereabouts. And I would go over at lunch, and I would, I would look at those cases. I would put my hands on those cases. I would say, oh, God, do this again. One day I went and all of it was gone. So I went and found the, the, the sexton of the church. And I said, hey, where'd all that stuff go that was in the cases? And he goes, oh, the leaders told me to take it down. It was just gathering dust. Well, this is how people fall away from the power of God. They become habituated to a low-power existence. God, spare us from the curse of low expectations. I said, what did you do with it all? He said, oh, I put it in one of the storerooms under the stage. I said, don't ever throw it out. I said, if you're ever told to, here's my number, call me. I'll take all of it. These were living testimonies. Seventy-some years later, after she'd started her ministry. Well, Amy Semple McPherson finished up in 1944, but not before she'd raised up a spiritual disciple. I'm still tracing this line of anointing, of apostolic succession, if you want to say it that way. She'd raised up a successor by the name of Catherine Kuhlman. Catherine Kuhlman would come into a room with her long flowing robes and her Scottish brogue, and she'd say, oh, the Holy Spirit is moving. Oh, can't you feel him? Holy, precious Holy Spirit, we just love you. Benny Hinn learned to do this from her. 
And it's said by people who were close to her and who know that when she died, her mantle was torn into seven strips. I don't especially like that language, but I certainly understand what people are trying to convey with it. So whatever it was that she had, it was divided. Benny Hinn got one of them. Lonnie Frisbee got one of them. And a man named Mario Murillo got one of them. It wasn't all that long ago I was in a meeting with Mario Murillo. And so I said, hey, Mario, I want to ask you a question. I said, I'm trying to fact check something that uh, I've heard before, but I, I, don't have, I can't find historical data to back it up. So I figured I'll just ask you. You're a primary source. He goes, okay, what is it? I said, you know, it is said that when Catherine Kuhlman died, her mantle was torn into seven strips and you got one of them. He kind of looked at me and he cocked his head and he goes, no one's ever asked me that before. He goes, but that'd be right. And I was like, okay, bingo. If that's right, it's probably true of Lonnie. It's probably true of Benny. I don't know who the other four are, but um, I could guess who some of them might be. I'd probably put T.L. Osborne on that list. Well, anyway, William Seymour, Lake and Bosworth. So the founder, spiritual sons, spiritual granddaughter is Amy, great-granddaughter is Catherine, and the great-great-grandson is Lonnie Frisbee, for at least in this branch of the stream. Because this is the nature of these things. As you move further down, there's more and more branches. It can, the river, all rivers run to the sea, but the sea is not yet full. And God's intention is to fill the sea. The Lord's falling on you, ma'am. You stood up a couple times because you wanted God to fill you. And the Spirit of God is coming on you right now. This is your night to accept something that you've been asking for for a long time. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would let your divine power rest on this sister, that she would receive all that she has asked for. Lonnie Frisbee brought that same power to the vineyard on that Mother's Day, 1980, and that's where the vineyard's legacy of power comes from. And from there, of course, it's spread hither and yon in different places, but I am here tonight as somebody who's been part of all this, and I am here to tell you that these things are so, and I am a living witness to the very testimony I'm giving you. And I believe tonight the Lord's going to release power in this room.